most of the very Twitter popular VCs are not like the best VCs. For us, the goal was to be a firm that when you meet with us, you're like, these guys get what I'm doing. I need to talk to a VC that understands the nuances of it versus like somebody who doesn't have that background. The founder then has to do the job of like educating the VC versus partnering with them. When you get into the industry, you're trying to replicate these things that might've worked for other people, but like they're not gonna work for you. So instead of trying to be what the side perspective is, just just being comfortable with being who I am, even though that doesn't help you get on like the, you know, the Forbes 30 under 30, like whatever, because you're not working on the publicly busy thing, like you're working or with your founders. I play a lot of Magic together. It's kind of similar. It's like, is my game plan still good? These things might keep me alive, but like, are they gonna help me win? Welcome back to the Generation Hustle podcast. On the season three opener, we have Alessio Finelli, partner at Decibel BC. In this episode, you'll learn about Decibel's investment strategy, how they help early stage startups and the future of data tools. Alessio also details his journey to venture capital, dealing with imposter syndrome and how gaming helps him be a better VC. So let's get right to it. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest, Alessio. How's it going, man? We're good, man. Thank you for having me. Sweet. Thank you so much for coming on. So the first thing we always, always start off with is trying to learn more about your journey and kind of diving into your past as kind of how you took that path into tech. So maybe for us, and the audience, share with us one experience in your life that stands out, that influenced your path towards tech and specifically since you code, coding. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so again, thanks for having me. I'm always excited to share some of these stories. You know, I grew up in Rome and you know, like a lower class family and we didn't have a lot growing up, but my family all pulled together to buy me a, a PSP, like a PlayStation portable uh, when I was younger. and. You know, I would only would only be able to afford like one game each year, which would be on my birthday. Um, the problem was that there were so many good games coming out. You know, you had like the Final Fantasy VII, you had like all the Grand Theft Auto games, you had God of War, and I just wanted to play more than one game each year. So um, we had this very old computer at home that my mom brought home because her um, her office was throwing it away. She she was a bookkeeper. Um, so one day I just go on Google and I search how to download PSP games for free. You know, you're okay. like, okay, well, then yeah. you're trying to, you're trying to learn how to do that. Um, and I started to run into all these like different, uh, you know, at the time it was online forums with people sharing, um, you know, how to jailbreak your PSP and like how to run homebrew software and things like that. And, um, I was probably like, I don't know, 13 years old at the time or something like that. And, um, I thought that was just like super cool. So I started getting involved in forums and like learning how to like, uh, run homebrew software on these PSPs. And that kind of became also my first job, you know, quote unquote, okay. with, yes, with France yeah. and, uh, people and, uh, you know, people that I play soccer with and whatnot. And I think that really got me hooked into like the whole coding aspect of it. And just like, for me, code has always been, a. Uh, you know, a vehicle to build things that people use. You know, I, I've never been interested in like the academia part of it, you know, like doing research and like writing good code or whatever. For me, it was always about uh, getting things done. Um, and uh, I think the other thing that is not necessarily tech related, but it's more like community related, you know, like a lot of these forums, 
people are just writing things that they know and kind of sharing their code and sharing knowledge. And I think that's something that stuck with me. And over the years, you know, I've managed communities of PSP hackers, of hip hop enthusiasts, of like rap genius, of competitive Halo players, of developer tools now. And it's just something that I'm a big proponent of it. That's why I'm so invested in, in open source. You know, I just think like sharing and kind of working in public and increase the pace of innovation so much. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my first foray into tech and then the, the rest is history. Yeah, I guess. the rest is history. <laughs> no, it's really funny that you mentioned that PSP. We had, uh, one of my friends in school, he would like, uh, had the mod for the PSP. So jailbreak it. Mm-hmm. And he would basically charge everyone like 40 bucks to jailbreak it. So like during high school, that was his like prime business. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Like throughout the year, he probably did like, I don't know, like 70, 80 PSPs. And, you know, when you're in high school, that's a lot of money, you know, it's right, like, yeah, yeah. a long, long way for your cafeteria food. So, uh, you know, it's funny that uh, we have that similarity or connection there. Um, yeah, moving on to kind of your current role now. Um, could you help us summarize what you do in your role as a VC and maybe even before that, how the opportunity came about in the first place? Yeah. Um, so right now I'm a partner at a firm called Decibel. Um, we're basically trying to build the firm that I wanted to have as a technical founder. We only invest in infrastructure software. So the main three buckets are, you can think of like data, security, developer tools are kind of all we do. Um, and being very focused allows us to be great partners to early stage founders because we really understand your market. All of our value add, uh, is built for you. So we don't have generalist marketing help. We don't have generalist good market help. We can have very specific tools. And I've been in VC now about five and a half years. Uh, I was previously at a firm called Six or Five Ventures. And I joined Six or Five as an engineer. So my background, you know, I studied computer science and I dropped out of school to start an open source company. I then worked at a bunch of early stage startups as a lead engineer. And one day I was on Twitter and uh, I read a tweet about six or five ventures hiring uh, an engineering fellow. Um, I, I knew mostly nothing about VC. Uh-huh. And I, I applied for the job because it was part-time anyway. So like 10 hours a week, I figured it would be a good learning experience. Um, and the firm was based in New York and I was still living in Rome at the time. So to give more background, my wife is American. And at the time we were living in Rome, we lived there for a couple of years, but we can always thought about going back to the U.S. So. Um, I thought that would be kind of like a good way to, um, to get started there. Um, and yeah, then I joined the firm to build Voyager, which is our kind of software platform. And it does a lot of things from sourcing deals to evaluating companies to do portfolio management. And, you know, today's kind of like one of the gold standard for PC platforms out there. And the way I got into the investing side was, as I was building software, I would see more and more of these companies that the software was helping us source come up. Um, so I would start bringing some of them to the, to the investment committee and say, Hey, I think this company is interesting because when, when I was an engineer, this is kind of what we needed, you know? So it feels like more people out there are going to need that too. Um, so over the five years that I spent there, started as a part-time engineer. Um, and I ended as a principal on the investment team, kind of leading anything related to infrastructure software and developer tools. And today, Decibel, I still do both roles. So we have like a, an internal platform that we still need to come up with a, with a cool name for, you know, we're calling it the mixing desk for now, uh, which helps us kind of make sense of a lot of the data out there. You know, at six or five, a lot of my work was sourcing great companies across stages, 
now at Decibel, we're kind of building, you know, very focused tools. So we have like a, a lot of stuff that we do on the open source side to track, you know, gr growing projects, but also tracking the health of those communities, tracking who are top contributors, what do they like to contribute? You know, there's a lot of things that we do as well as my usual investing work. So, you know, building software allows me one to still have a little bit of street cred, you know, yeah, like when I go yeah. talk to a founder, I'm like, you know, Paul Graham would say like a pointy hair boss, you know, I'm not just sitting there telling you what to do. Like I do still get my hands dirty. Um, and it also helps me try a lot of these products, you know, like some of them, like take CubeJS, which is a, a company we're investors in. And it's basically like a open source uh, data middleware. You can think about it. Basically it helps you connect all of your data stores and give a unified interface for it. I was a, I was using the product and I was an open source contributor before I invested in the company, you know, like that was one way to kind of build the relationship. So I still spend a lot of time today on GitHub, you know, contributing to things or writing things that might help open source maintainers, even though they're not founders, you know, like, yeah, for me, it's not just about founders to me, just about the overall ecosystem. So it's a very, you know, open role, but it's, it's a lot of fun for me. Yeah, no, super fascinating. And maybe to dive a bit more deep into that. Um, so we know most VC firms are pretty generalist. Their, their ultimate goal is to kind of go out there, find opportunities and invest in them. And, you know, they might have some other offerings to be more value add. I feel like your firm specifically is very, very specific. And you mentioned the kind of three verticals that you guys focus in on. But you guys are also kind of building software to enable you guys to make better decisions, but also enable the founders that you work with um, kind of exceed much further. So could you maybe describe why the expertise focus perhaps and what are the maybe perhaps the benefits of having a focused thesis versus more of a generalist kind of idea? Yeah, no, this is a, a conversation that in the VC circles has it's been going on for, for a while. It's kind of like the aggregators versus like the specialists, you know, on, on one side of this, on one end of the spectrum, you have the Andrishan Horowitz, the Sequoias, the, you know, Excel, kind of like this large multi-stage blue chip firms. On the other end, you have the more specialized firms, which in our industry is us, you know, um, Amplify, uh, Heavy Bid, Root VC, there's, there's a few. Um, what I'm seeing you know, previously working at a new generalist firm that didn't have the benefit of the brand is that when you reach out to a founder and having been a founder, I kind of went through the top process myself. It's like, if I get 10 inbound emails from 10 firms, three of them are specialized in what I do. Three of them are, you know, the Sequoias of the word. Right. And then there's four more generalist firms that have neither of the two. It's like, which emails am I going to respond to? You know, yeah, it's probably at the end of the spectrums. And this is even more pronounced in our areas because they're so hard to understand. You know, like if I'm building a security company and I have kind of like a very unique approach to it, I need to talk to a VC that understands the nuances of it, you know, versus like somebody who doesn't have the background and says, well, I heard about antivirus software or like endpoint protection before it's like. How are you different? And the founder then has to do the job of like educating the VC versus like partnering with them. Right. So yeah. for us, the goal was to be a firm that when you meet with us, you're like, 
these guys get what I'm doing. Like they understand why I'm building this and they can be the best partner that I can be. So even when we say, you know, our marketing partner, Francois, he used to be the VPO global marketing at Twilio. So when we work with our companies on marketing, they don't have to explain to us, you know, when you market to developers, you want to do things a certain way. Right. Like we already have all that expertise on the team and we're trying to supplement your knowledge. So usually our founders are very technical. So most of their background is like building software and kind of like being technical voices. They don't have the voice of the customer in their head too many times. So we kind of like to complement that. Um, So that's one example of like being very focused. And at a generalist firm, you cannot hire the BPO Global Marketing Atwilio as your marketing partner because most of your companies are not going to sell to developers and like they cannot help with that. Um, So those are some of the thinking behind the specialist, right? Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I think, a lot of valuable insight. And, you know, I had a couple of founders recently reach out to me as well. They're talking about the same thing where it's, they didn't feel like they were partnering with that VC fund. It was more just capital, which at the mm-hmm. end of the day is commodity. It's available anywhere. And so they're like, we can get this term sheet with multiple VCs, but how do we specifically allocate mm-hmm. these specific right. ones that we can actually partner with? And so, yeah, my piece of advice was like, how they provide any strategic input and or kind of help you excel. So it's just like that idea of like strictly capital. If you need it, you need it, you get it. They didn't really need it because they already had enough interest. And so it's just like be strategic in terms of what capital that you're trying to raise. And so going into our next point now is in your philosophy, how do you go about evaluating an investment opportunity, especially at an early stage? Because a lot of the fundamentals are not usually there around numbers. It's usually team, technology, uh, go-to-market strategy, a bunch of those things. So what's your philosophy in, uh, in terms of evaluating that? Yeah, there's definitely a few common threads. So the first one is most founders that I work with kind of like a unique insight into their market that they got in two ways. One, they had extensive experience in the space. So they might have had senior roles at some fast-growing startup in the space or kind of like publicly traded company. And they basically say, hey, this is kind of like the Achilles seal of this market. This is what we're going to build as a wedge. And then this is how we're going to expand or whatnot. The other one is uh, founders that have bootstrapped their product either through an open source motion. So they might have worked at a company building open source and this open source project is becoming really popular and now they want to build a company on top of it. Or sometimes it's um, infrastructure that they built at a previous startup and then they realize, hey, you know, the application we we were building is not that interesting, but the underlying infrastructure is what people really care about. So they kind of spin that out. So that's usually like the first step. We don't, I haven't really worked with founders that, and again, there's nothing wrong with it, but they're kind of like coming out of school and this idea to like revolutionize cybersecurity, you know, because it's kind of hard to go at it from like first principles, you know, like you should really need to have been in the trenches. Um, so after kind of get comfortable with the founding team, I think the other piece is like diving into the product, you know, like, and sometimes you don't have the product, but you should know why you want to build something. So that might be, you know, um, most of take like observability, which is like data dog kind of products like that. All these things used to require you to install their own like agent to capture the data. So you will kind of be locked in into one platform. 
one thing you could say is like, hey, there's this new open standard called open telemetry. And in the future, proprietary agents will be replaced with kind of open standards. I want to build a company that leverages this technological shift to kind of like go after Datadog and the likes. So that's like, you know, one example of like a technological slash product innovation that you need to be kind of in the weeds to know. You know, if you're just looking at like a parking map, you don't really get that. Um, another way to, we kind of like to think about it is like, hey, most of the investments we do at that table have either like a bottom up motion or like an open source motion. They're rarely like top down sales. So a big part of it is like understanding how the founder is thinking about the single player experience versus the kind of team experience versus the enterprise experience. And a lot of times I see, you know, engineers wanting to build tools for peers, you know, so they build a very cool developer tool that other developers love, but then how do you go about, you know, moving this up to the team level to start charging money? You know, how are you going to make half a million dollar a year with a company of this product? You know, there's all these different things that the founder don't really have to have the questions, the, the answers to all of them, but we would like to have them at least understand what the axes of attack are on these things. And again, the reason why we want to invest a lot of times is because we want to help, you know? So most companies that we invest, we hope that we have something to bring to the table. You know, sometimes if we can't do anything for you, we're probably not going to invest because yeah. again, yeah. like you said, it's like, you can get the money anywhere. And like for us, we want to make sure that we're providing something more than just the capital. Um, so. But we do need to have like a sheer set of truths and beliefs, you know, before we start. Um, so a lot of times that's, that's what it looks like. And, but you know, it's usually uncomfortable to do these investments because like, there's not, you know, there's not really a lot and you're kind of betting on the team, figuring it out and kind of working with you on it. So you have to have a high level of trust. Um, but again, that's the only way to make money because if it was clear, everybody it'd be it, you know? easy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, so, uh, talking about that specifically, so looking outside the scope of just say investing, what would you say is like the hardest part of being a VC? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, the hardest part about being a VC, I think it's probably, especially when you're young in your career, it's like trying to find your lane and your voice, you know, like. I think one, there's a big gap from between the outside, uh, perception of VC from like people that are not in the business yeah. to like yeah. what it actually looks like inside. So most of like the very Twitter popular VCs are not like the best VCs. Yeah. But from the outside, you're like, if you've never been a VC before, like you're, you want to get in space. space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, oh, wow, this guy's on like Twitter all the time. And we're like, is making all these TikToks or whatever. It's like, when you get into the industry, you're trying to replicate these things that might've worked for other people, but like, they're not going to work for you. So like the hardest thing is like, how do I come up with like who I am? You know, when I got into VC, I was like, okay, to be a VC, you need to understand, um, go to market and like the, how to understand markets and like how to build business models. And because that's kind of what you think about of VCs when you're not in it. But then what I realized in it is like to be a great VC is to like be a great partner to your founder. Yeah. So like 
what's the best way that I can do that? Like for me, it's kind of staying true to like my strengths, which is like being technical, being close to the product, um, and being somebody who's been a founder before. So I can kind of like have empathy for a lot of what the founders go through. So instead of like trying to be what the outside perspective is, it's like just, just being comfortable with being who I am, even though that doesn't, you know, a lot of times that doesn't help you get on like the, you know, the Forbes 30 under 30 or like whatever, because you're not working on the publicly facing thing, like you're working more with your founders. And I think like that sometimes can give you a lot of doubt when you're like in your first one, two years in uh, NBC. Um, but then, you know, that kind of goes away or if it doesn't go away, you can always, you know, go back to, to being yeah. founder, you know, yeah. so like, uh, it's not for, it's not for everybody. Not for everybody. Uh, yeah. Just even talking about that, what's your best piece of advice for uh, facing like imposter syndrome? You you talked about, you know, let's just say me, if I wanted to go to VC, the first place I'm going to look at is like usually the forum, the socials and all that. And you get this automatic idea of this is how, how I have to be, uh, who I have to be aspiring to be. But you alluded to kind of building your own personal brand and kind of your own ideology. But I feel like social media kind of makes you have a different construct and then you feel like you may be not moving ahead. So how do you kind of deal with some of those pressures and maybe what's your best advice to kind of be in that healthy mental space as you like in general? I, you know, the first thing you should do is not go on Twitter is to go on the Midas <laughs> list and yeah. go on the Midas list and say, who are the 100 best PCs out there by return. You can look at the list and then you can go for each each of them, you go on Twitter and you see how much they're on Twitter. And then you start and, and see what the, what the correlation is between the two. Um, I think like imposter syndrome, you know, like I, I don't even have a bachelor degree and I'm from Italy. It's like, I don't know. I don't have like these like Harvard networks or, or anything like yeah. that. And yeah, I think like, again, it goes back to like really being true to yourself as to why you should be in this role. And, you know, this is the same as like when I was a founder, it's like not everybody needs to be a founder, you know, like some people should just work at companies. And I think like, if you want to be a VC, it's because you need to know that you do something better than most people. And that's going to help you and your LPs generate better returns. If you just want to be a VC because you like to, you know, write on Twitter or like to write blog posts or like to go to like, events or whatnot, you can do it for a couple of years, but at the end of the day, what matters is like the returns, you know? So like you can get from analyst associate to like VP or something like that, just by being good at thought leadership and kind of like, you know, working hard with your general partner. But as you get to like the partner level, what's really going to matter is like, can you get in front of the best founders? Can you get them to take your money? And can you help them get to like every large exit? The whole like publicly facing thing kind of goes away. So like most people that you see that do a lot of tweeting and do that, they already have all of that, you know? So don't focus on like, or the ones that are still around, you know, when you see Kid Roboy on Twitter saying yeah. Miami, the place to be like, whatever. It's like, he already built a great career. He already generated great returns for his LPs. They're not giving him more money because of his tweets, you know, it's kind of like, because of his experience or like experience. 
results. For you, if you want to have a long lasting career, it's not going to be enough to just have the thought leadership, but you're going to need to generate returns for your LTs. So we'll start from there. And for me, it's always been like most people that invest in developer tools are not technical and they don't really understand the nuances of it. I think that I can do a better job than most people at it, you know? So that's kind of been my thesis. And again, it, it takes a long time to prove these things out, you know, so it might not be, uh, but I think like, if you know why, what your unique angle is, then everything you do is focused on that. So you're not comparing yourself to like other people. You're just kind of looking at what you're doing. It's like, it's a help in me work towards this goal and kind of like build the skill set. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Um, and I just feel like I wish there was more individuals with your philosophy and kind of sharing that ideology out there versus just mm -hmm. like the branding and that's kind of the focus. So. Let's maybe get back on path here. So we alluded earlier that your focus is on infrastructure, dev tools, and security. So I'd love to kind of talk about that a bit further. Uh, specifically related to infrastructure tools, something I come across is there's a lot of embedded data tools nowadays. And, you know, they can be specific to niches, you know, finance, engineering, whatever it is. So if I'm a stakeholder that is trying to decide on what tool to use, Let's just say it's a data specific for engineering to uh, embedded tool. How do I assess and what would make um, the most value point for the organization? Like, how do you go about assessing that? You know, I think like in data specifically, the last few years have been focused on data engineering. You know, a lot of the big companies that came out in the last five to 10 years, I think about Snowflake, DBT, Fivetran. These are things that help you move the data, transform the data, store the data. They don't help you consume it in a way that creates ROI for your organization. So I think like the next um, generation of tools, like in the next five years, a lot of companies are now looking at their data budgets and they're like, I'm spending a lot of money on saving this data. I'm spending a lot of money on these data engineering teams. What am I really getting at a business level? You know, and there's some companies like, you know, the Ubers of the world that do dynamic pricing and whatnot, but yeah, that get a lot of value out of it. But a lot of companies are just getting some dashboards going and kind yeah, of like maybe yeah. do some low level, like machine learning things, but it's nothing really serious. So I think if I was like running an organization, say like an engineering team, I would say, Hey, I have all this data now. How do I make my team more productive on it? You know, instead of just helping them save more data, you know, like we're investors in, um, a company called Bicycle, which was funded by Scarus, like the former CTO of, um, App Dynamics, which was a large acquisition by Cisco. What they do basically is, um, the thesis is you have all this data about product usage and error rates and observability data, but there's no business context tied to it. So you might have 99.9% .9 success rate in your payments. Like, that's great. But how do you know, like, if the 0.1% is actually your biggest customers, you know, like, how do you tie the two things together? So what they're doing is building a platform that kind of helps revenue teams and engineering teams kind of work together on like, how do you prioritize bug fixes? And like, how do you understand if this data is meaningful? So I think like in the future, you'll see a lot more data tools coming to provide value rather than coming to just provide the infrastructure for it. Um, I think it's still, you know, 
relatively early, early but yeah. especially in this market where like, you know, if the snowflake bills come and it's like a million dollars, you better be doing something with the data, you know, like we can't, we can just keep it, keep it there forever. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's gotta be interesting. No, that's awesome. So basically kind of do the assessment and kind of focus on a business use case that ties in, that can also add in collaboration, productivity, and efficiency across your organization rather than siloing it off for say engineering finance or whoever the end user is. Right. So, uh, right. Oh, that because, sense. that's kind of the, the history of data, you know, like I wrote this article about the history of business intelligence and before you kind of like the, the oracles, you know, you had like this data analysts and everybody had to go to them to get the answers. Yeah. You know? I yeah. think like what we built in the last few years is like tooling that allows the data to move to all every team in the, in the organization and, but they're not data scientists. So now the next generation of tools is like, now that they have the data in their hand, how do I help them be more productive? Um, okay. Awesome. And so security is another topic that uh, I love to talk about, and it's been widely discussed in the news and, you know, there's layers of security, of course, maybe not, well, we're not going to talk about CIA level security, that kind of stuff, but in general, for most organizations, what do you feel like is the biggest challenge they face today? And what is your kind of assessment in terms of building uh, infrastructure security policies um, that help, you know, alleviate some of those challenges? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in security to me, the biggest challenge is always apathy, you know, like I love reading security research and, you know, it's interesting to see all this like zero day exploits, like the Pegasus one or like the, you see the whole like solar winds, like hack, which is like a super complicated and like well-engineered attack, but most breaches and things come down to like very basic stuff, which is like misconfigured applications or people being socially engineered. Those are like the main two things like years ago, like target, I think they were found like $200 million for like a breach. And basically somebody logged into their system to like a internet connected air conditioning system. And they got the credentials from like some random maintenance person in Pennsylvania that probably had it written like a sticky note or something like that. Um, so I think most people, most individuals in an organization usually don't care that much about security because it rarely is going to impact them specifically. So, you know, I think like companies and products to help remediate that are really interesting. And, you know, we invested in a company called Push Security, which is basically building a product that forces or that encourages user driven security. So like right now, most security is like the CISO is telling you what to do or like the security people are telling you what to do. If you don't do it, you get whipped. What push is trying to do is they basically use, um, natural language and, uh, generative AI to build these conversational experiences with individual employees. So they have like a Slack integration where, you know, the push bot might message you and be like, Hey. I just noticed you don't have two factor on this application. Do you want me to help you set it up? And the person can ask, oh yeah, how do I do that? It's like, where do I go? And it kind of makes sure that the security program can scale without needing to hire more security okay. people. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think more of those things will be what we see. It's like security moving away from being like this burden that nobody wants to like really do unless the CISO catches you. If the CISO catches you, then you got to do it. But as long as you fly under the radar, it's like. 
you don't really want to mess with it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think like there would be more and more of the responsibility put on the individual employee plate to actually do it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's funny, like, uh, yesterday I got a request, not yesterday, Friday, I got a request from a CISO. Uh, so we have Salesforce. He's like, we need, we're doing MFA now. And so you have to sign up, get the authenticator app. And I forgot to do it. So I'm locked out right now. He's like, I told you to do it. You know what I mean? Right. So there is a level of security, but to your point, I would have not done that if nobody told me to. Mm-hmm. So I, I yeah. think uh, that a company that you're working with makes a lot of sense. I think it's usually the user side and the lack of me wanting to do something uh, or just an extra mm-hmm. layer of complexity that's out of the scope of my work. Um, but, you know, most people don't have the education as to why security is so important. So I, I do love that kind of, you know, super easy kind of workflow that makes it simple for me to understand, like set it up, we're good to go. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, you kind of alluded to it, but what uh, security, uh, what companies in the security industry are you most excited about in general? Yeah, I think like mostly it's, again, going back to the data point, it's like, how do you make this data actionable for security? You know, like uh, there's a lot of companies out there that um, like, you know, one of the investments I worked on at six or five ventures is a company called Panther Labs, which is uh, basically like a CM. It's like a security observability built on top of the data warehouse. So, uh, you know, the previous generation is tools like Splunk, where you have to send all of your data to them and then analyze it. What Panther does is like, oh, since your data is already in the warehouse, we kind of come to you and build on top of it. So I think like a big part of security also sometimes is like making sure all the data is there for you to analyze, you know? So like any tools that can either help concentrate this data all in the same place and like making sure you have full visibility, or if you already have the data, make sense with it, make sense to it in a more scalable way are really interesting. Um, and you know, we're always on the lookout, obviously for some like amazing, you know, uh, really low level innovation or like, you know, how do you do fingerprinting of some of these, uh, exploits, like how do you surface this thing early on? But most of the time things break down at the workflow level, you know, like it's rare that like you have a bunch of, you know, uh, adversarial activity in your network that has never been seen before. You know, so like most of the investment should be on being able to see it and act on it quickly. Um, so I think those are all tools that will be super successful. Sweet. Okay. So let's talk about the founders and specifically around the current macro environment right now that they're facing. So in your opinion, what are the kind of best ways for founders to kind of scenario plan right now? And how do they pick which one to really execute on? I think the, if I was running a company today, like the first thing I would do is figure out how like the macro affects my customers. So there's kind of like the macro, which is like the word. And then for you as a business, you're selling to a subset of that. Um, and I was reading the Q3 2022, like CIO report of one of the, the large four banks. Um, and there were a couple of things, you know, some of the budgets are not going to grow. Some of them are going to shrink, but the top three things for all CIO, CIOs are cloud computing, security software, analytics, which are the true buggers that we invest in. So as you think about what to do as a company, 
you probably have to think that most of your contracts are either going to stay flat or shrink going into the next year. It's probably going to be hard to upsell. It's probably going to be hard to land accounts at the same rate and at the same size that you've been doing in the last couple of years. Uh, but the reality is that it's a great opportunity. You know, like the other day we're chatting at our, our team meeting and my partner, John, you know, he's been in VC a long time and he was talking about 2008 and kind of that time. He was saying most of the companies that came out of the period as winners were the ones that were kind of spreading the virus during the downturn. So, you know, the, the budgets might shrink, but the problems are the same, you know, like the CIOs still need to solve these things. Like on, on Christmas, like a lot of people are going to shop online, you know, a lot of people are going to be streaming, you know, die hard on, on Apple TV or whatever. And like these things need to work, you know, so they're going to be looking for something that helps them do that. You're probably going to have to have you know, lower pricing, you might have more generous free tiers, but you need to be there for the customer today. So that when the budgets then come back up, it's like, oh, which companies have provided a lot of value to me over the last few years? And those are probably going to be the ones that stick around versus some of the, you know, you might be able to have like a customer, you know, captive for a couple of years because like they signed this long contract and they can't get out of it. Yeah. Like, are you still helping them get the right. job done? You know? Yeah. Um, and that's why we like to have companies that have, you know, open source projects or like bottom sub motions and kind of like developer bad products because you can get into these organizations even when the budgets are small. And then when it's a better time to sell, you can kind of focus on that. So if you're kind of like building scenarios for your companies, it would be like, you know, one, how do I not um, cut down on like, product pace of development, you know, like how do I keep the same rate of product development that might be cutting or not growing sales that might be spending less on marketing or whatever else, uh, you might think. And also it's always hard for me to, to give advice on scenarios or give advice on layoffs or things like that, because there's so much variance between how much money you get in the bank, what the, what the price of the last round was. Like that's one thing people don't think about what market you're in. You know, there's, there's plenty of money for full-on capital and companies that work well, you know? So like, I wouldn't be as worried about, oh, my company is going to be amazing, but nobody's going to give me money. It's like, no, people will give you money, you know, like <laughs> it's harder to make the company amazing. Like getting the, the money is not, it's not as much of an issue. Yeah. Um, so I would just focus on. How do I build something? How do I build a company that gives me enough runway to get in the hands of as many users as possible? Even though the contract sizes might be smaller, but when I'm an investor and I'm looking at investing in the company, it's like, I want to talk to the users. Like, do they like this product? Like, why are they using it? Like, they could be using any sort of tool out there. Why did they pay Q, you know? And like, why are they going to stick with you for years to come? Um, so that's kind of what my advice would be just kind of focus on spreading the virus, you know, yeah. send the product out there, get people to use it and solve their problems. You know, yeah. that's, that's what software is there for. So maybe not the traditional grow at all costs. It's more, you know, value driven, uh, efficiencies to make sure that you're providing a lot more value for your existing customer base. You know, growth is still a part of it. Not to say it's not, but in a downturn or whatever it is. 
you know, make those adjustments to make sure you're driving value. Because at the end of the day, that's where your end user is mm-hmm. wanting to sign up with you in the first place. Um, so value-driven right. folks, at the end of this whole period, then you probably have come out of it beating a lot of the other market goers within your space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if right now you have an engineering team, you cannot say you had a roadmap, but you're not going to be able to grow your headcount to meet it. It's like, what things do you keep on the roadmap? Things that drive bottoms up adoption, things that lower the, the onboarding overhead for your customers, anything that makes your company less needed for people to use it, because you're just not going to be able to hire enough people to go talk to customers. You're not going to be able to hire enough customer success people to do onboarding. So like you need to focus on making it easier for your people to not be needed. Yeah. Um, so that's like one example of like how to do it without just saying, oh, we're not going to focus on growth. It's more like, how do you focus on like sustainable growth? Yeah, sustainable. That's the right word. Okay. So, and usually and typically in downturns, as we've seen in tech right now, there has been a lot of layoffs. So I know layoffs are very unique and specific to kind of some of the fundamentals around your business and industry. But if a decision has come by the founder where, you know, it makes sense to do these layoffs, what would your maybe advice be in terms of communicating this, um, in terms of the investors to the board and how that process should look like? You know, I definitely have companies that I work with do layoffs in the past and this hasn't been just recently, you know, it it just happens in companies, especially when you're growing quickly. I think one. Always keep your investors in the loop because like the last thing you want to do is like show up to a board meeting and you're like, oh, we're doing like a 30% riff yeah. and like, we're going to let go of like a bunch of people. And you're like, I thought this company was doing great. You know, what's going on? Uh, so that's the first thing. And again, in this market, you're probably going to need to rely on your existing investors if you're running out of money a lot of times. So you want to make sure that they're kind of in the loop all the time. I think it's harder when it comes to communicate into the team and it really depends on a lot of things like one is like size of the team so like if your team is like two three hundred people and you're letting go of like 30 people it's really hard but a lot of people in the organization are not even gonna know those people just based on the size yeah, yeah. if you're doing layoffs in the team that is like 25 30 people and you're letting go like even just seven eight people that's like a lot. And most people are like pretty close with each other, you know? Yeah. So I think like, it's always a fine line between how you're kind of giving the people you're, you're still about motivated and like do the layoffs in a quick, in a manner that keeps the business going. Right. Like I have to tell founders is like, you know, you definitely don't want to let people go because it's hard for them. Right. They're going to find a new job and whatnot, but like, what if the company, if you don't do it and the company goes out of business, now everybody has to go find a new job. Yeah. So you're trying to like, as a founder, you have to make the hard call, you know, but like what you're saying by not doing layoffs, if you think they're necessary, it's just trying to avoid hard, an, a hard thing to do for you. It doesn't benefit anyone else to not yeah. do it. Um, and obviously how you do the offboarding and like how you help people find their next opportunity and like really important because, you know, the community is like not that large, you know, especially if you're working in 
more like if you're working in cybersecurity, there's just not that many cybersecurity people in the United States. So like you don't want to be somebody that mistreats their employees because the word spreads best. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's hard, but it's not supposed to be easy either. You know, so I yeah. think the, the investors are there for you. So rely on them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, it's a business decision. Survivability is important, but also kind of if you have that decision that you have to make, make sure it's the most thoughtful and kind of thought out way to kind of translate, communicate that to those individuals. Um, I think that makes a huge impact and just kind of, you know, morality mm-hmm. of the existing individuals within right. the company, right? So it's it's very important. Okay, cool. So we've talked about kind of the VC kind of, uh, you know, founder stuff, a bit of the business side of things. One thing that I found really unique about your profile and that maybe some people don't know that have listened to this podcast is that you are a avid gamer. So you've actually played professional gaming. And so one thing I'd love to learn is, are there any transferable skills that you've taken away from your experiences from gaming that you've applied into your investing career? You know, there's definitely a bunch. And I, I think like if I had to just say one, it's kind of like thinking of like the the macro picture while like you have to act on like the micro things. So like, say, take like, a, you know, in Halo, you're playing capture the flag. You know, you got to take the flag from their base to your base. It's like the micro action is like, grabbing the flag, running, avoiding grenades, people are throwing at you and like shoot back at people if they're right in front of you. That's kind of like the micro. The macro thing is like, well, if I go through the left side or the right side, how does that impact when the enemies are going to spawn next? If two of my teammates die, should I try and keep going or should I like give this up and just go back on the defensive side? There's, there's a lot of like bigger things that like your micro decisions affect the macro, like in a big way. And when you're working on startups, either as an investor or a founder, you're usually working on like the micro thing, which is like, oh, closing a new customer or like shipping a new feature. But sometimes you got to make sure that the things you're doing in the micro, like still good for the macro of the business. So like you might spend all this time trying to build this feature to close this customer. But now you're deprioritizing all these other things that are like better long-term things. So like the best decision might actually be to drop this customer and like go build these other things. But if you're too focused on just like the small thing, you don't see that. So it's always a balance between the two. And um, you learn a lot of that in Halo and like, you know, I play a lot of like Magic the Gathering too. And I was like, it's kind of similar. It's like, is my game plan still good? You know, like these things might keep me alive, but like, are they going to help me win? Yeah. You know, like, I don't okay. need to stay alive. I need to win. So like, maybe you have to do the more risky thing to try and win long-term, even though it has a higher likelihood of dying in the short term. Um, but again, it's easier yes. in games than when there's people's jobs. Interesting take for sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a good gamer by any means. I'm usually like near the bottom if I'm playing COD or whatever. My KD sucks. So. Uh, I'm not that great, but I'm pretty sure you have a better philosophy and strategy around how to win. Um, speaking of which, what is like the most memorable moment that sticks out to you throughout your gaming career? Uh, it was definitely my first, uh, you know, land tournament. And, uh, it was the first time I left 
Rome on my own. You know, it was the first time I was traveling on my own. Uh, and it was in, um, in Luca. There's like this big um, Luca comics and games. It's like a Italian comic con. And, and Luca is like a medieval medieval city. So the whole thing is hosted within like the walls of this castle. It's oh, like cool. a very cool, cool setting. Um, and I just remember, like, I think we placed like second or third. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was like, and the way it used to work, now you don't really see it anymore. It's like, now you have the main stages. But before it used to be two stations of Xboxes on one side and the other. And that is massive crowd all around you. It's like, so you would like be surrounded by all these people watching you and commenting. And then you would like get up and like trash talk the people across from you. And it's like, it, it was just like so fun to do it in person, you know, because before, obviously I was playing a lot online, but like when you're playing online, you're at home and like, it's not kind of the same. You know, um, but when you're, when you're in person, they're just like a different level of like hype and, um, it was just kind of like, uh, addicting, you know, um, and ended up playing in, you know, many more tournaments after that, but never forget your first one. Yes. Yeah, of course. Of course. And how would you describe the pressure? Is it more pressure being a gamer, uh, in a championship game or a VC? I think like, I, I mean, for me, um, being a VC, well, you have the responsibility of like, you're managing someone else's money, you know? Yeah. I think like, that's like a big, a big pressure to me that I didn't take lightly. Uh, but the thing with VC is like the, the feedback loops are so long, you know, that I think like you need to be comfortable, um, with that. Sometimes when you're used to having short feedback loops, being in something that is so long, sometimes it makes you feel anxious because things are not, things are not resulting, you know? short term when you're playing a game like you can kind of like put yourself in the zone for because again it's never more than like 15 minutes you know so like you kind of put it you can kind of shut things off and like get through it and then after you do all of your like reviews and whatnot but um it's a different kind of pressure but it's much harder to snap out of like you know like a a bad streak when you're in a game you know like because you're only playing 50 minutes, like you spawn in a game and like you die two, three times in a row. Then you're like, oh, but I suck. It's like, I'm getting yeah, destroyed this game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But you need to get, get back in the game really quickly, you know, versus like in VC, sometimes like you're in a bit of a lull, you know, you might not find a good company that you're really excited about for like a month, two months, you know, like you need to be okay with that. Um, but you need to get back in it, you know, sure. not in two minutes. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. you can kind of like rethink about your thesis and whatnot and rebuild that. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. And so we talked about one thing earlier uh, on the show, and it's about this idea of relationship building and being a partner. And so one question I have to ask you is, how do you become a trusted peer? And are all relationships built on providing value? Uh, I think like in our business, there's, too many relationships, like the relationship with your founders and the relationship with VC peers. I think when it comes to VCs, a lot of people early on just try and like network with people that are like much further ahead than them. You know, they want to like know the partners and whatnot. For me, it's always been better and like more fun to like build a relationship with people that are kind of like at my level that we can kind of draw together. You know, and I think like a lot of my best friends, like, you know, Amanda, which yeah. you just said on the podcast, so like people that I've known 
for a while before they were like partners or, or whatnot. Um, and I think like seeing each other grow and kind of being there for each other is like builds the most trust because you cared about me when I was not somebody that people cared about. You know? Yeah. So like, yeah. I know that you'll be there for me. Um, when it comes to founders, it's a little different because there's kind of like this, you know, there's this power dynamic, right? Which is like, I'm invested in your company. Like I'm on the board. It's like you run the company, but like I should be involved in a way that is like non-disruptive, but like at the same way, you should listen to me when I give feedback. There's a lot there. Um, I think like most trust in the founder VC relationship is built on one true understanding, you know, like, do you actually understand what I'm doing as a founder? Um, two, and being there anytime. There's a lot of founders out there that right now are probably not getting their calls returned and they're probably not getting a lot of love from their yeah, VCs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of VCs out there that invest in a lot of companies. So, you know, we only invest in about seven companies each year as a firm. We got four investment partners. So we put a lot of work behind each of them. Some of them, other firms do 40 investments a year. So like they can't possibly spend that much time with founders. Um, so I think like, yeah, just being there and giving, I think sometimes like VCs are too afraid of like giving hard feedback, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. a lot of times, like you gotta tell the founders like, Hey, nope, it's not cool. You know, like that was not the right way to go at it. And maybe they'll be upset in the short term, but I think like in the long term, it builds a trust where when I say something positive, you know, it's positive. And when I say something that is negative, you know, that I say it because I got your best interest in mind. I'm not just trying to put you down. Um, but it takes time, especially for founders that you might've invested it like a year or two ago, where like, you know, you might only have a couple of days to like get to know them or whatnot. And like, they also didn't do as much work on you. And yeah. then it turns out that you're not really a good fit to work together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely got to try lightly. Okay. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And then last question here before we get into our lightning round. If you knew what you know today, how, what would you have done differently? You know, I always try to not have regrets on like things I've done. And I don't think I really have that. I think for me, you know, I've been in the U.S. now for years um, and I've, you know, San Francisco is really far from Rome. Uh, and I think like if I did things differently, probably a lot of times in my life, I was always on kind of like learning something else, like doing another thing, like whatever, and less about enjoying and kind of like cherishing the smaller things that it, in hindsight, it's like, you know, in Rome, we have like a lot of traditions and kind of like people are very laid back and whatnot. And sometimes I would like, kind of get frustrated with that or, but now kind of like, well, I wish, you know, I would enjoy those times more because now it's, you know, I go back, I try and go back to Rome once or twice a year, but, you know, visiting is still different than the living there. Yeah. Um, so that would probably be the, the only okay. thing. And yeah. Sweet. Awesome. So, well, Alicia, uh, that's kind of the bulk of the podcast. As I mentioned, one thing we always like to do is do a little lightning round at the end. So. There's four questions. You have like a couple seconds to answer each one. So let me know when you're ready to go. Let's do it. Sweet. So favorite book of all time. All right. People will say it's not a book, but Dante's Inferno, which is like, you know, one of the three uh, parts of the Divine Comedy. Okay. No, that's all good. It's all good. 
Uh, if you could have dinner with one person, who would it be? It's, I, I mean, it has to be Kobe, but if it's only uh, alive, uh, I would say Jay-Z. Okay, cool. Interesting. Interesting picks. Uh, best Halo's game? It has to be Halo 3. Just okay. Ranking Wait, system. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, we're aligned there. We're aligned there. Okay. okay. And then I'm pretty sure we'll align here since you're, uh, you come from Roma and you're Italian. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? That's a line I'll never cross, you know, okay. to make, <laughs> I, I made many sacrifices by yeah. moving to the United States, but when I pull on pizza, it's not one that is on yeah, my list. You cannot do it. Cannot go that far. Sweet. Awesome. So, um, any last words and how do, how does our audience reach out or find, find you? Yeah, you can, you know, on Twitter at Fana Hoba, uh, or my email is my first name at decibel.pc. So, uh, Feel free to, to reach out anytime. And if you play any video games, you know where to find me. Yeah, sounds good. I really appreciate you coming on, Alicia. Great conversation. And uh, thanks again. All right. Thank you, Oman. Thank you.